I'm Dan. I'm Elaine. And this is Sublime True Crime. If you want to skip the preamble and get straight to the show in question, just skip forward to about three minutes and five seconds in. What have we done this week? Well, we've both been off technically, haven't we? Although you've still been working off and on. Yeah. I've played a lot of Assassin's Creed. You have. We should point out it's that, that weird time of year between Christmas and New Year when no one really knows what date it is. No one really knows what day it is. No one cares. I had to ask uh, Alexa what day it was the other day. Shh, don't say her name. She'll egg in. <laughs> Do ask her. I was like, I don't know what day it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, yeah, you've played a lot of Assassin's Creed. I've played a lot of FIFA. I'm still appalling at it. I don't think you're that bad. I just flail wildly at stabbing people. Is that not what you're supposed to do? No. Okay, yeah, maybe you're <laughs> terrible at it then, because that's all you do. <laughs> the kids are better at it than me. <laughs> um, it, it was New Year's Eve last night. Yep. Um, and we didn't celebrate it because quite frankly as I'm sure everyone will attest 2020 was a shit year and we were glad to see the back of it yeah we sort of we had a couple of drinks watched some crap telly and then went to bed before midnight <laughs> yep the way it should be yes indeed yes. we had a nice dinner with the children though didn't we beforehand just that sense we did yes lovely. nice curry a homemade curry mm. uh, apart from that Back to work next week and back to normal. We say normal. Uh, back to as normal as life can possibly be in yes. the pandemic. Yes. We've got a couple of episodes written already, so we should be good to continue. We just need to find time to write some more. Fingers crossed. Anyway, we did ask on social media whether we should collate and put out an episode of mispronunciations, cock-ups and other clips that didn't make the main show. The overwhelming response was yes, and that went live on the 1st of January. Hopefully you've managed to have a listen and you enjoyed it. It isn't our normal type of stuff. It really was a, a collection of clips of stuff that had gone wrong and us sounding like brats. But now back to the actual true crime stuff. Before that, though, we've got one review to read out this week from Podfiend101, who says, A great pair. As Dan pointed out in the latest episode, this podcast really is his baby and he does loads of work behind the scenes. He clearly runs a tight ship. However, when it comes to their presenting style, I think it's safe to say that Elaine is the real star of the show. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Her warm and bubbly personality is a nice contrast to Dan's more aggressive manner. What? What the fuck do you mean? <laughs> the overall dynamic works well and they come across as a true power couple. Oh, thank you. That's lovely. It's lovely. Thank you ever so much. If you would like to leave us a review, and as always, we would love it if you could do, please, just go to sublimetruecrime.com forward slash rate. We'll do our best to read out the five-star reviews on the podcast where we can. This week, the case of the best friend killer. For once in his life, Derek Bennett was flush with cash. It had taken him his whole life to get there, but now that he had money to burn, the 41-year-old was determined to enjoy himself. He made sure that his best friend, Philip Hegarty, was with him to enjoy his newfound wealth. Derek had an arrangement with staff at the Cardiff International Arena, which allowed him to park his car in the car park. After parking up there, he and Hegarty made their way to the Claw pub in Roth and met up with Derek's brother, Paul, as well as his nephew, Matthew. The four of them parted hard, and Derek wasn't shy in telling anyone and everyone that evening of his good fortune. As he peeled £20 notes from a roll of cash every time he bought a round of drinks at both the Claw pub and various other venues later that night, he boasted of a lucrative cannabis and cocaine deal that had made him thousands. In fact, 
He told anyone within earshot he had more than £3,000 in cash in his money belt and £11,000 worth of drugs in his grey Renault Laguna car. I don't think I'd be shouting about that in case I got mugged. Yeah, I wouldn't. By the time they decided to leave, Hecate decided to drive Derek to pick up his car before driving the rest of their group home, with Derek following him. After dropping everyone off home, the two men drove to Hegarty's flat in Clare Road, Grangetown in Cardiff, and decided to get some sleep. Just three days later, on Monday the 14th of April 2003, that same car was set alight in the car park of the Earl Hague British Legion Club in the Whitchurch area of the city. Originally thought to be an act of vandalism by joyriders, the firefighters tackling the blaze quickly changed their minds when they noticed what appeared to be an arm sticking out from a rolled-up carpet on the back seat. Closer inspection revealed the horror. A body burnt beyond recognition. It was only when dental records were checked that the body was revealed to be that of Derek Bennett. He had managed less than one weekend of spending money like it was going out of fashion before his death. The post-mortem examination revealed more, as you'd expect it to. Derek's skull had been broken into 23 pieces. Bloody hell. And the Home Office pathologist, Andrew Davidson, said that he'd been hit at least six times with a hammer or similar. A beating which would, Davidson suggested, have seen Derek slip into unconsciousness, though he also estimated that he may have lived for up to 90 minutes after the attack. Fucking hell. His hands and arms showed no sign of defence wounds, indicating that he did not resist the beating. And lastly, there was no soot found in Derek's lungs, a sure sign that he was, mercifully, dead before the car was set alight. So what happened to Derek Bennett? Well, Robert Nash, Philip Hegarty's boss at the call centre where he worked, later revealed that he had learned of Derek's death when he phoned Hegarty with a work query. Quote, I began the call by asking him how he was, and he said he was not very well. He said... Derek has been found dead in the back of his car, end quote. He then described Hegarty as shocked and shaken, with a completely different demeanour from the previous Saturday when he had last seen him. He also said, quote, I asked him if the police had been to see him, and he said, my God, yes. He told me that apparently he had been the last person to see Mr Bennett, end quote. He also revealed that on that same Saturday when the pair had spoken, Hegarty had told Nash that he was able to pay back some of the money he'd borrowed from him. In fact, he paid back £500 of a £1,000 loan that Robert Nash had lent him. And it wasn't just Nash that Hegarty repaid that weekend. Normally known as someone that was always strapped for cash, he paid off a number of debts, including not only the £500 back to his boss, but also £750 plus £50 interest to a colleague who'd lent him money. But even before Hegarty had started repaying his debts, police detectives were already well into their investigation. They started with when Derek had last been seen alive. They learnt that he'd spent the previous Friday night with his best friend. After flashing and splashing the cash all night as he showed off his newly acquired wealth, Derek and Philip Hegarty had left the party together with a couple of others. It was Hegarty, though, a 48-year-old call centre manager, who the police were interested in. He was well known to them, and he had a long history of violent crime. Knocking at the door of Hegarty's flat, the police arrested him for the murder of his lifelong best mate. The reason for the arrest was not just because of Hegarty's criminal record. Forensics had revealed that Derek's body had been found wrapped in a carpet. When checked, the carpet was found to be covered in dog hairs. Hairs which matched those of Hegarty's dogs. Surprise, surprise. 
There had also been a pillowcase covering both of Derek's feet, as well as a pink and white towel wrapped around his head and a pillowcase. Similar items were found at Hegarty's flat. Hegarty insisted to police that he did not own the carpet used to wrap up the body and that he'd never seen the pillowcase and towel. I love that line of defence. This pillowcase matches a bed set that you've got and this towel matches other towels you've got. Oh, I've never seen those. No. Never, never seen those before. No, never, never seen, seen anything like them. Well, as well, the carpet that's covered in his dog's dog hair. It's not my carpet. <laughs> well, whose house has your dog been at where it's been rolling around on the carpet? But the police didn't stop there. They also searched the home of Hegarty's girlfriend, Anne Kerslake, where they found a large quantity of cannabis and cocaine hidden. Funnily enough, the same drugs that Derek had boasted about having in his car. Hmm, that's strange. Hmm. During his interview, Hegarty told police that the pair had parted ways after he dropped Derek to his car. Asked if Derek had said what his plans were, he replied to police that Derek had mentioned he was going to go and get some breakfast and had a few things to do, and that had been the last he'd seen of him. He'd watched him drive off before he'd gone to his girlfriend's house to pick up his dogs. In court, however, the prosecutor revealed that witnesses, including a gas worker and two neighbours, had seen Derek at Hegarty's flat on that Saturday morning. Hegarty's cast-iron, all-defeating response... In court, bear in mind. He agreed that he must have forgotten his friend was with him that morning, after all. Now, I would describe myself as forgetful. I sometimes misplace my phone. I can struggle with the names of things, especially if it's anything modern that has passed me by, like songs or Xbox games. I am like my mum used to be. Are you on your Nintendo? Yes, Didn't have a Nintendo, I know, right? (laughs) But if my best friend had died in mysterious circumstances, I'm pretty sure that I'd have a good recollection of the last time I'd seen them, and even more so if they'd slept at mine. Well, you just would, surely. That's something that it's burned into your brain, isn't it? The last time that you saw somebody before they were, before they died or were tragically murdered. The prosecuting counsel, Gregory Bull QC, told the jury that greed was the sole motive for the murder. After murdering his best friend, the man who called him Bruv, I really hate that. Bruv. Bruv. And the thing is, I think Bruv is very Cockney, very Londonish, but they're from Cardiff, they're both Welsh. Strange. He rolled the body up in a carpet, bundled him into his car and set fire to it. Quote, in a deliberate and calculated attempt to destroy evidence he may have left on the body. End quote. I have a question. All of these people that do that kind of stuff, and we've had a few in the episodes that we've done, why do they not smash out someone's teeth? I know it's not a nice thing to do. Whoa, that's but... made me feel quite sick, you've seen that. <laughs> <laughs> Who <But> are you? <laughs> if you've murdered someone and then you're wrapping their body up and setting fire to it to get rid of evidence, you know that dental records are going to be checked. I know. Or is there more to it than that? I mean, if you if you removed everyone's teeth, is there still a way to identify who they are through dental records because of the way their jawline sits? No, I don't think so. I think it is just the actual teeth, isn't it? Does it destroy DNA evidence? They're hoping it will destroy not evidence of who the victim is, but of their involvement with it. Oh, so yeah. was he hoping that the fire would get rid of the dog hairs on the carpet and any other evidence he'd left behind? Possibly. I would just think if you're going to do it, do it properly. Do you know what I mean? Get rid of the teeth as well. You know. Well, Remind we- me not to piss you off. <laughs> <laughs> We've covered enough cases now where we're starting to learn what works and what doesn't work. Chop off the hands, get rid of the hands, cut off any tattoos anywhere. Anyway, enjoy your breakfast. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> he went on to tell the court that Hegarty would say anything to get away with murder. He questioned Hegarty on how he was able to give a detailed description of the all-night party, but could not recall seeing the father of two at his flat the following morning. Yeah, because you'd expect the all-night party to be the blurry bit with all the boozing. Yep. Although that gets me as well. 
they were out boozing and then they all, they all drove, drove home. home afterwards. Nice. I can only imagine that A, they don't really care about the law, just, you know, by the way that he's obviously murdered someone. Yeah. I would also suspect that a large amount of cocaine probably helps to focus your senses. Oh, well, I don't mm. think so. Hegarty conceded that his friend was, quote, probably attacked, end quote, at his flat, though he insisted that it must have happened between 10am and 3pm when he himself had been out. Of course. This didn't explain how the apparent murderers knew that Derek was staying at the Clare Road address that night, nor that he would be alone when they went around. The prosecutor also added that it would have taken at least two people to carry a 12 and a half stone man out of the flat and into his car before asking Hegarty who his accomplice was. Do you know what? As I was writing this, it was at this point, given the level of intelligence that he'd shown so far, that I was really expecting to read that he'd said, I did it on my own. <laughs> but he didn't. Instead, Hegarty replied, I did not have one because I did not do the murder. Although he has given some daft responses, Hegarty isn't the complete imbecile I would like to make him out to be. In the hours after the murder, he was seen visiting a Tesco store, making a point of being seen several times on CCTV. He also called a friend and met for a drink in a local pub. In other words, he was doing his best to give himself an alibi. Albeit several hours after the murder, which is when he needed an alibi. But there was yet more evidence against him. The jury were told how Derek Bennett's blood had been found inside Hector's flat, as well as on the clothes he'd worn on the night of the killing. In fact... Hegarty's fingerprints were discovered in blood on a wall in the cellar of the flat. Cellar in a flat? Must be a ground floor flat. I was like, I didn't even know that could be a How thing. How bizarre, yeah. Maybe it's just a house and they've got it confused. <laughs> it could be. A point made by Mr Bull in court. Quote, in order to leave a fingerprint in blood, you must put your finger in it while the blood is still wet. End quote. He continued that splashes of blood found on Hegarty's settee were said to have been consistent with the attack occurring while the victim lay on it. Derek may have been, quote, asleep or dozing with his back to the attacker, end quote, at the time. I mean, you'd feel like you were pretty safe, wouldn't you, sleeping on your friend's sofa? Best friend's sofa, yeah. Grown up together from the sounds of it, being like friends for such a long time, you think, kipping over at somebody's house. Do you know what you say that? that I think they were, they were good friends when they were youngsters. They'd grown apart and then they bumped into each other a few years earlier, but they were obviously really thick mates. Yeah. Um, as you could tell by the fact they called him bruv. Oh, bruv. Uh, but not only that, not only do you think you would be safe, but you've also got a load of money and you've gone out with your best friend and spent money on him together. Baffles me. I know. He also revealed that blood was found sprayed on the walls close to where he was attacked, as well as on walls leading to the basement of Hegsey's flat, underneath the handrail along the basement stairway and on a phone bill in the defendant's name. When pressed on why the flat had been thoroughly cleaned in the hours after the killing, Hegarty told the court that he'd been cleaning up vomit from one of his dogs. Had he noticed any sign that his best friend had been attacked in his home while he himself had been out? No, though he added, quote, The police sat in front of the blood splashes on the wall when they were interviewing me. They didn't see anything either, end quote. Right. I mean, as defences go, that, that's, I could understand where he's coming from there, but I would also imagine he's cleaned the blood up. You'd hope so, wouldn't you? And when asked about whether Derek's blood that was found on Hegarty's shoes and jeans came from him moving the dead body, Hegarty simply denied it. The defence tried to change how the trial was going and asked Hegarty to tell the court more about the financial struggles that his friend had been having. Hegarty was quick to tell the court, quote, He was robbing Peter to pay Paul. He would have a number of suppliers and would get his drugs on credit, 
he would get some drugs from dealer one and pay for drugs from dealers two and three from the profits, end quote. He said that Derek has, in his own words, dropped the balls about a month before his death. Quote, he'd lost the use of his car, which he used to do all his business in, and could not pay the people he owed, end quote. When pressed for how much Derek owed, Hegarty answered that it was more than £1,000. He knew this because he'd agreed to lend Derek £1,000 so that he could give his dealers, quote, a gesture of goodwill in part payment, end quote. Do you know what? When £1,000 is merely a gesture of goodwill in part payment to a drug lord, you know your life is fucked up. Absolutely. He also told the court that his friend was in fear of his life. His defence counsel asked him if he'd killed his friend, Derek Bennett. He answered, quote, no, I definitely did not. He was like the brother I never had, end quote. Hegarty also argued during the trial that he could not have dumped his friend's body in the Whitchurch area because he was completely unfamiliar with this place. This was despite the fact that his criminal record showed that he had committed at least eight burglaries there. So not that unfamiliar with the area then? To be fair, he probably burgled in the dark, he, you know, was dressed and sneaking around. He may not recognise it in the daytime. The defence then called Colleen Jacobs, Derek's girlfriend, to the witness box. She'd lived with Derek for the five years leading up to his death and admitted that her boyfriend had been worried about his debts to drug dealers who were higher up the chain. She said it was common practice in the drugs underworld for suppliers to hand over large amounts of drugs to local dealers without charge, with the understanding that the money would have to be paid as soon as the drugs had been sold. Mr Albury, acting for the defence, stated that Derek was not a man who was easily frightened, but, he asked Colleen, he was frightened this time? She replied that he was. So bad has the situation been, Derek went missing for a week just a month before his death because he was unable to pay his drug suppliers. Although she felt confident that the problem had been sorted out by the time of his death, Derek apparently still seemed edgy and wary. I suppose doing drugs will do that to you. And taking them. And taking them. You see, I think that's where he made his main mistake, isn't it? You're not supposed to take them if you deal them. That's true, yeah. Supposed to deal them. <laughs> the jury was sent away to deliberate its verdict. It took them 36 hours before they came back and found Hegarty guilty of his best friend's murder. It was only then that the killer's 79 previous convictions were read out before the court, to the shock of the jury. Bloody hell. Beginning at age just 10, when he stole from neighbours, Hegarty spent most of his childhood in approved schools and stalls for theft and assault. In his 20s, he got convicted for beating up old ladies for their handbags. It was the torture of a 60-year-old man in his own home in 1988 that saw Hegarty, then aged 33, receive his biggest punishment, 15 years in prison. He had slashed the terrified victim's face, forcing him to reveal where he kept his savings. He had then been released after 10 years. Judge Mr Justice Roderick Evans, and I can never hear the name Roderick without thinking of life of Brian, release Warwick. <laughs> said, quote, you are a resourceful and manipulative liar. This was a brutal and very violent killing and you are an extremely dangerous man. There is no doubt he enjoyed your company that night, drinking, taking drugs and going to an all-night party. Within hours of that coming to an end, you bludgeoned him to death, hitting him about the head with a blunt object, shattering his skull into 23 pieces. He took one and a half hours to die. I have no doubt your motive was robbery. 30 years is not enough. The sentence is whole life. You will spend the rest of your life in prison. End quote. Outside court, Colleen Jacobs, now bringing up their children, Josh, three, and six-month-old Kian, who was conceived shortly before Derek died, 
said of the killer, quote, Phil could be charming and likeable, but I suspected he did it from the outset. He was so cool after the murder. He even invited me to his flat and sat me down on a settee where Derek had been killed, end quote. Oh, horrible, fuck it, that is horrible. Derek's brother, Paul, welcomed the sentence, saying, quote, Justice has been served, and it has given me faith again in the justice system. There is no jubilation for me in this. At the end of the day, that man should never be on the streets. He should have been locked up a long time ago. Derek was a lovable rogue, well-liked in the community and always put a smile on people's faces with his wit and personality. It hasn't been easy listening to the evidence or reports that Derek was the best friend of his murderer. End quote. Just a quick note from me though, although nobody deserves to be murdered, let's just remember that Derek was not a fucking rogue. He was a drug dealer and his actions would have horrible effects on his local community. Yeah. Full stop. Absolutely. And that is the story of the best friend killer. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's it's just horrible all the way through. The fact that obviously, you know, they were friends. You think you trust your friends. I, I don't know. It's such a small price for life. I know that, what was it, 10 or 12,000 pounds of cash plus the drugs that you could sell. What, 20 grand's worth? Yeah. To kill your best friend over? I know. And I, from the sounds of it, Derek was very generous with his money. Mm. I'm sure if Hegarty had said, I've, I've got these debts or whatever, you know, it was, what was it? Just over a thousand pounds that he owed. Yeah. In it's... total. I'm sure he, would, he probably would have loaned him that. Well, he might have even just given it to him. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. Horrible. Mm. Let us know your thoughts. You can email us, dan at sublimetruecrime.com or elaine at sublimetruecrime.com. Or you can reach us via the Facebook page. Just go onto Facebook and search for Sublime True Crime. If you're enjoying the series, please leave us a review as it helps us to reach more people. If you want to leave us a review, you can do that at sublimetruecrime.com forward slash rate. We'll do our best to read out the five-star reviews on the podcast where we can. Lastly, if you can think of any cases that you would like us to cover, please let us know. We're always on the lookout for UK crime. But until next time... Goodbye. Goodbye.